and then Scott will come bring us a message. Thanks, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. This morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 24, through to chapter 28, verse 8. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there, was, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not there, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew, for that epic story. You can't have Easter without the Easter story. Everybody said, Amen. My name is Scott Krieger. I'm a member of this congregation, and I love being here with you this morning. We're going to look at uh, this passage, which I'm entitling, Once Upon a Cross. Before we do, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Father God, you are a God of truth, and you have made that truth your word. And that word enlightens us and encourages our hearts and our minds. We ask you now to intend your truth upon us via your Holy Spirit, that you would show us this means of grace that you've given to us, that there is truth in it, that we can believe it, and that we can be changed forever by it. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, there might be some of you here today who have never heard the facts of the last days of Jesus on the earth. In fact, most of us have heard this account time and time again. We're probably so familiar with it that it might even catch ourselves thinking, yeah, yes, yes, I've I've heard all this before. The Easter story is the greatest story that's ever been told. But it's kind of closely becoming no more than a nursery rhyme or a bedtime story that begins once upon a time. This is how the facts of history often get relegated to mythology. Um, Maybe uh, legend, that which is surprisingly accurate and evidenced become myth. And when its outcome is particularly uncomfortable, it becomes a legend. Many people want to ignore the massive historical evidence of the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in comparison with the relatively little information that there is regarding the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo. And yet very few people have any trouble believing this particular historical fact. When it gets right down to it, the ignoring of incredible evidence is more about the meaning and the content than the event itself. For it is the meaning behind the death and the resurrection of Jesus that is the stumbling block for many, many people. Some people want to begin the pivotal point of human history with once upon a time. But the reality of the Easter story must begin with once upon a cross. 
For it is upon the tree fashioned into a cross that we find God having his son be made sin for us. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It it was upon a cross that the shedding of Jesus' blood made possible the removal of sins and mankind's salvation. And so the Easter story must be for each of us something more than just a bedtime story that begins once upon a time. The main idea that we want to be looking at this morning is that Easter is a time for all Christians to experience and feel the significance, the reality, and the necessity of the cross that Jesus died on. And so, let me introduce you to the wood of that new agreement. Because in that new agreement, we're going to find some cool things, like the first of which is that death has lost its edge. We become a people who have become accustomed to hearing about death. The news media has, be, in some sense, I think, this desensitized us to the death that we see in the world. Not uncommon for us to hear or to read about hundreds of lives being lost in a single incident or accident. We are traumatized by the deaths of so many people in the Ukraine. Terrorism and natural disasters and criminal activity are exposed to us daily in the news feeds. And so, with that in mind, it's easy to see how and why we might give so little thought to one man's death over 2,000 years ago. It's like you look at the cross as we do a new car that you just bought. Now that the newness is worn off, all we think about now is having to make the payments. And Christians are usually very excited about hearing of the effects of the death and the resurrection of the Messiah Jesus for them as new Christians. But after years and years of about hearing about the of these things, well, we have to admit that sometimes the shine of on that gift has dimmed a bit. That it has to do with our that has to do with our perspective on death. But let me tell you this morning that God's perspective is really quite different. You see, when we talk about the divine, uh, the death of the divine perspective, in in that perspective there, we must see again, because it's always been there and it hasn't really gone away, that in the cross is a new agreement that God makes with mankind. The paperwork has been done in the Old Testament and now is being signed and sealed and delivered through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So we, we go back to the Old Testament here just for just a moment and look at Jeremiah chapter uh, 30, 
1, verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Pretty cool. The old, test, the old agreement was organized under the keeping of the laws given by God through Moses filled with commandments that people then and today could not keep. The new agreement, the better arrangement, which included the law being written on our hearts with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, was made complete at the cross of Christ. This is where we get the good news. This is about what the core of the gospel is. There might be some of you here today that have heard about the gospel of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. What is that, you might ask? Well, let me explain it very carefully. The God who made all of creation is holy. That means he's set apart from sin or anything like it. God cannot be in the presence of sin now or ever. Problem is, is that we're bent in sin. We were born that way. We have a natural affinity to sin because of the fall. And we can never, ever like this be in God's presence. If you do, you would be consumed. One stinking little sin in your life is going to send you to hell Forever and ever. Let's get that right. One, just one. And of course, if you're like me, you've got many, many, many more. So the entire human race is doomed to hell because of a holy God's holiness separating himself from that. And so God says, this is the way it has to be, unless I do something about it. And so God says, I will do something about it. I will send my son, the infinite God-man, to pay for their sins. Because God's rule is that if you sin, you die. If you sin once, you die forever. So I want to fix this. I'm going to send my son to come in there and he will pay the penalty that I require from my justice and my holiness because I love them. And so this Christ comes to do his father's will and to die on a cross for you and you and you and you and me. He pays the penalty himself. And there's a verse I want you to pay attention to on the screen. 
John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word, the phrase, it is finished. In the Greek, it's called tetelestai. It's a marketing term, and it means paid in full. Paid in full. No longer was there a debt, an outstanding balance against man for his sin. Jesus paid it in full in the new agreement on the cross. We sang about it earlier. Jesus paid it all. And I believe that as Jesus spoke these last words, the walls of heaven resounded with tetelestai. It is finished. It's paid in full. And the Old Testament saints shouted as they heard of the completion of man's salvation restored and a restored relationship with God. You see, the cross of Christ was no accident. Rather, it was the purposeful and necessary plan of God that the Lamb of God, who was to be slain before the foundations of the world, would become the new agreement on the cross. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says, in a kind of a negative way here, that uh, all those who dwell on the earth, and we're talking about what's left of the dregs of society, all who will dwell on the earth, will worship it, and I'm talking here about the beast, everyone whose name has not been written in the, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of, of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, those whose name is in the book are different from everybody else. Something that was decided even before the foundations of the world. Go figure. And while most covenants and contracts and agreements use clay or stone tablets or papyrus or paper, this new covenant was written on your heart and is exposed on the cross, the wood of the cross. If we're going to appreciate all that the wood of this new agreement means, well, you have to react to the cross. It means understanding death from a human perspective. Perhaps as the news media has desensitized our understanding and the significance of one man's death, the world of economics has hindered our reaction to the cross. It's big business, you know. Crosses are big business. The poet Calvin Miller once said, it is a human fault that men have no re reaction in depth to the very sight of the cross. Our world has literally gone cross crazy. Cellulite crosses are manufactured for bookmarks. Luminous crosses are suspended on light poles. They're worn on chains around the neck and welded to steeples and built of polished wood for uh, church altars. There are even cross factories that manufacture crosses on a production line basis. 
We have crucified the cross with overexposure. I think Calvin Miller's right. I've seen that myself. Ancient peoples, when looking at the cross, only saw death. For a person that was carrying a cross could only mean one thing, death. And they would not be returning home. They were going to die. And we talked a little bit about that on Good Friday, about reacting to the cross by dying to yourself. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And just so that you catch the import of that, it's take up your cross daily, not weekly, not monthly, not whenever you feel like it, but daily. Jesus wants us all to see and to experience the death of ourselves when we look at the cross. The denying of yourself and whatever you like and want to do that day and picking up the cross daily, that's what speaks about your death. When people wear a cross around their necks, do they, they, they too often only do it to remind themselves of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. And that's all right as far as it goes, but they never think about their own death. They don't think about what it means for them to wear a cross and then to do something as in terms of reaction to it. It's a symbol of death that we usually do not apply to ourselves, but we should. When we look at the cross and see the new wood of the agreement, we must react to the unconditional, of, of the, the unconditional call of God to f- come and follow Jesus. Our reaction is one of obedience to the cross. We think about the symbolism of the cross for a moment. Unfortunately, the cross today is becoming just that, a mere symbol. Like the nativity scenes at Christmas, we drag them out like we do the cross at Easter. And when Easter is over, the cross is stored away for a season along with the baskets and the bunnies and all the consumed chocolate and egg that we now find gone because we ate them. But the cross calls for a decision. A reaction today and tomorrow and next month and even at Christmas. The cross calls us to react. Jesus puts it really bluntly in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I hope none of us ever find ourselves in that kind of a state where we're not worthy. We're not worthy of Jesus. The cross warrants our reaction of obedience to a a personal death. A personal death of ourselves, our wants, our desires, our compulsions, 
our thoughts, that we may live unto Christ. Death is never pretty, but it is a necessary part of God's redemptive plan. So we have to deal with the outcome of the cross. And you may ask yourself, well, what are we left with? With what outcome does the cross leave you? Is it my death or your death? Is it the story of Jesus and his love? Just a tale of a well-meaning martyr? Does Jesus' splendid life end as a powerless piece of human fiction consigned to once upon a time? Because if it does, then there is no hope for you this day or for me. So where does the cross lead us? I can say you, to you this morning with some encouragement that the outcome of that is victory. It leads us to the dark appointed day at Calvary, that good Friday that seemed to steal the hope of all those who followed Jesus. It leads us to the day that was spent in the grave, the tomb that was so gray where all who were following were in a state of shock and dis disbelief. And ultimately, it leads us to the outcome that is this glorious Easter morning. A morning of resurrection and a still empty tomb. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If the cross does not lead us to this final outcome, the resurrection, then there is no need for us to be here today. If the cross does not relieve you of your the guilt that you of your piled up many sins there is no reason why you should be here today if the cross now stained with the blood of the infinite God man Jesus Christ does not become the symbol of the reconciliation you now have with the Father Almighty then you're just wasting your time here because that's the truth. The good news is that, and praise be to God for it, the cross has the outcome of resurrection, of life. We can speak of the cross in the past tense, but we dare not speak of the resurrection in the past tense. For this is something that is still happening today. Right at this very moment, Jesus is alive, still resurrected, the grave still empty. And all who confess and believe in Jesus Christ experience resurrection. In him we have life. Life abundantly, life everlasting. 
Rene Lacoste, the world's top tennis player in the late 1920s, won several major singles titles during his career, uh, including multiple victories at Wimbledon, the US Open, the French Open. His friends called him Le Crocodile. An apt term for his tenacious play on the tennis court, Lacoste accepted the nickname and had a tiny little crocodile embroidered on his tennis blazers. When he added it to a line of shirts that he designed, the symbol caught on. And while thousands of people around the world wore alligator shirts, the emblem always had a deeper significance for Lacoste's friends, who knew its origin and meaning. The cross, an emblem of Christianity, also holds such a special meaning for every friend of Jesus. Whenever we see a cross, it speaks to us of his tenacious determination to do his Father's will by dying for us at Calvary. And what a privilege it is to know him and be included in his words to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. And I can just picture a friend of Lacoste seeing his little alligator on someone's shirt and saying, I know the story behind that emblem. Lacoste is my friend. And I can picture a friend of Jesus seeing a cross on you and doing the same. Some people today will still declare the message of the cross as nothing more than a myth mixed with the unbelievable. The great preacher Oswald Chambers once said, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who are more or less, uh, who more or less ignore its meaning. You know, we need men and women of the cross with the message of the cross, bearing the marks of the cross, marks of personal crucifixion. The Bible clearly states that the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's, it's not a fairy tale. It is the truth that begins once upon a cross. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, behold the greatest story ever told. It comes to roost in our own hearts and minds, in our lives. Lord, may we be obedient to the cross. May we learn to pick it up and to bear it wholeheartedly. That on it is not just a memorial to the death of your son, but it represents a crucified life in each one of us as we give up who we think we are by ourselves and live for Christ alone. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Thank you, Scott, for reminding us of um, the resurrection and what it means and the cross. Um, we come to a time where we're going to join in the Lord's Supper.